Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, you will remember today's guests from some previous episodes. They are a sister disability and advocacy awareness duo. Um, we're with Trishna uh, um, and Anisha, who have been on the show before. So, ladies, thank you so much for joining us again. Oh, thank you for having us again. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you on because we wanted to really dig into a couple of topics that we didn't get a chance to talk as much about in our previous interviews. So we thought it would be a good yeah. Uh, you know, excuse to have you guys together as well as <laughs> fellow advocates and sisters really going through so much of what you go through together. So why don't we start at the top? Um, which of you was first diagnosed and have your diagnoses and the disabilities that you with made an impact on your personal relationship between the two of you? So, well, um, so I was diagnosed first, mm-hmm. um, this having, is Trishna talking. Uh, this is Trishna talking. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, we should probably say that because yeah. we do sound very similar. We, we do. We yeah. get that <laughs> phone, they think we're each other. Yeah. Um, so, even, I, so I was diagnosed first, and my, so my symptoms started um, in around 2004 ish, mm-hmm. though I didn't, obviously, I didn't really know that it was MS then. Right. Then, my what became my sort of big this is what sent me towards the ms diagnosis um relapse was in 2007 right um and then i received my diagnosis in 2008 but 2008 was when anisha actually started to develop the symptoms of what she later be diagnosed with ulcerative colitis wow at the time when I was being diagnosed, Anisha was already experiencing symptoms of her ulcerative colitis. So it kind of, I mean, things, yeah, sort of started to happen, really happening around the sort of same time. Yeah, so there was a bit of a crossover. So I started to experience my symptoms of ulcerative colitis in, I think it was February of 2008. Mm. Your diagnosis was May, May. 2008. Wow, yeah. You really just dovetailed. Yeah. yeah. So, so obviously we'd had sort of that build up with Trishna kind of going, you know, what's going on? What does it really mean? What, what's life, you know, what, what is this new life with these odd symptoms happening? Yeah. And suddenly with me and, and some of my symptoms. Um, and also, so for me, I, I wouldn't say there was necessarily a definitive point of which there was a, a diagnosis. So I kind of go from 2008, that's when my symptoms started. Right. For me, obviously, there were lots of different terms being bandied about and 
um, we kind of just went along with it really. Mm. And oh, okay, this is what life has thrown at us. How do we navigate this now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> sometimes we, we kind of joke that we think that we weren't giving, I, I, I obviously wasn't giving my parents a hard enough time <laughs> just with my diagnosis. Yeah, so. I need a little extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we thought, so an issue would, an issue would then sort of join, join, the, join the club. Um, and we see, and then three years later, um, my, my identical twin sister was then diagnosed. So um, Also with MS, correct? Yeah, also with MS. Um, so yeah, it was very much, they say that things come in threes, don't they? So <laughs> yeah, they really do. And you guys are living proof. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. How, has it had an, like, what's the impact that all of these diagnoses have had on your relationship? Like, has it made you closer because you sort of get it with each other now? <laughs> um, it, it, it has, has in, yeah, in certain ways, yeah. in <laughs> other ways, sorry, in, well, in other ways, I think it's it has made things more difficult just because it's hard when you're both going through symptoms. I mean, just to so to make the clarify things for the listeners. So myself and Anisha, we live with our parents. Mm. A twin sister, Manisha, she um, she doesn't live at home, so she's she lives away from home, mm. um, and. It's, yeah, it can be hard when, like, for example, you know, you've both done, yeah, well, everyone in the, you know, has done a full day of work. Mm. And, then, you know, I'm extremely fatigued and having bladder issues. Anisha is in the middle of a flare and having bowel issues and is also fatigued. But the laundry still needs to be done. Right. And the dinner still needs to be made and you know all those all those things and so I think some I think the frustration sometimes can can make make it difficult I think you get to a point where it's one of those things where you know they often say that you you the people closest to you you know you showed them the most love but also they're the ones that you you take it out on them if you're frustrated or if you're angry or if you're tired they see you know the good the bad and the ugly Mm. um and I think that's yeah that's been very much yeah and I think it has changed how we've had to do things as well so um when Trishna first had her diagnosis and also actually in the lead up to her symptoms Mm. uh we were playing hockey so we've always played hockey Mm. we were field hockey field hockey yeah not (laughs) Not ice hockey. Real hockey field hockey. <laughs> not so much padding. Um, yeah, so, so we've always played, and actually over that period, we were playing for the same team. So we were playing for a hockey club, which was a minimum 45-minute drive away for a home game. Wow. And, you know, so when Trishna was experiencing a lot of her symptoms before her diagnosis, um, I was, for example, doing a lot of the driving. I would drive there. I would drive back if we wanted to go for a night out. So, you know, we love dancing. Again, I would do kind of a lot of the legwork because with Trishna's symptoms, whatever she was feeling, whether it was fatigue or she had sort of lost sensation down one side of her body, I was able to pick that up, Mm. still do things together. As my symptoms have changed, as my health has changed, so has that because now for example I need someone to be able to do 
some of the driving for me. Right. You know, I'm fatigued. I need the help. So I think also, you know, not just between us as sisters, but as a family unit, the dynamic has changed. Mm. And it has given us an opportunity, I think, to become closer. So I think there is a lot more understanding uh, around our conditions, our symptoms. Mm. But Trishna said, you know, also the frustrations do come out when we're all tired, when we don't feel well, when, you know, we're banging on the door going, I need the bathroom, I need you to out you know those sorts of things it, it then you know it, it tempers can fly and you know the frustration does come out and also to emphasize here I mean both um both our parents are in their 70s now so it's just it's you know at the time of life where we thought that we would be looking after them rather and increasingly over the years, we've ended up having to rely more on them. And that's also had a knock-on effect, I think, in terms of, you know, socially, what we've been able to do. Because yeah. when I was first diagnosed, like Anisha said, she was she was picking up a lot of the things that I was having to I was having to step away from. So things like you know, driving into London and, you know, when we were even organising nights out, I used to do a lot of the organising and then I couldn't manage it. So initially would do that. Mm. But now that, and she's not able to manage as, as much either. I think we have found ourselves in many ways, we've, we have become quite socially isolated mm. from the things that we'd always loved to do. So, you know, we still love going out and dancing, but we can't now stay out till three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know, remember one of the best nights out I had, I'd gone into London, gone to a salsa club with some friends. I picked them up on the way, driven into London, danced the night away. We thought we'd leave around midnight, 1am, but we were having so much fun. We decided to stay until three o'clock when mm. the club now then by the time actually you know you you toddle off to your car and I dropped my friends home and then got home had a shower it was easy five o'clock by the time I got into bed well to that now I mean you know (laughs) yeah you know if we go out with friends now by 11 o'clock you know we're kind of done and ready and and we're you know we're needing our you know, so we've had to adjust and I think try to do things more locally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also with friends who understand. Yeah. yeah. I think that's been really important. We've, we've really seen who has understood and taken the time uh, to one, understand our condition and how it affects us. Mm-hmm. Also make the effort. Yeah. You know, so in the past, some friends have said, oh, you know, come into London. And, and we'd be like, okay, yes, great. And now that we can't do that, and we say, well, why don't you come out to us? They're like, oh, but it's so far and you live in the countryside. And it's like, yeah, but it was the same distance we were traveling. Yeah. So, so we've, you know, I think we have become a lot more reliant on our one close friends and mm-hmm. who we are, but also on our family unit because when we need to pull together, we pull together, we find a way to make it work, however that may be. I mean, there have been times, um, so I remember that there was, um, was a friend of mine and he's in a, um, a quite a pretty um, well-known Bhangra band. Mm. Um, and he's actually from up north 
um, and he was coming down to London. They were playing a gig. And I remember I said to Anisha, I said, look, it's going to be, it's going to be a reasonable time. Um, it was early evening, so it wasn't going to be too late. And it was, it was on a bank holiday weekend. I said, look, we'll, we can share the driving. And do you think, you know, should we go? And Anisha said, yeah, you know, that would be great. On the day, she wasn't feeling well enough. And I was like, I really want to go to this gig. What do I do? And I ended up, I ended up taking my dad with me. Yeah. <laughs> And, my, and I was there and I was thinking, gosh, you know, how times have changed. I'm, I'm having to take my dad to something, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. He thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, he was probably, he's probably having a social yeah. life now that he hasn't had for years. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but it, it was one of those things where, you know, it was some, it's something that actually you would normally do with your peers, with your yeah. siblings. Um, and in order for me to do it, I had to take one of my parents. And I think that's something that I I think also with social media, Mm. you don't necessarily understand that actually our parents have become a huge support for us. And in order to make certain things possible, one of them is almost always with us. Mm. You don't necessarily see that on social media. So they might see, you know, for example, Anisha's a licensed Zumba and inclusive dance instructor. So they might see her posts and say, oh, well, she's doing really well because she's, you know, she's doing Zumba, she's teaching these classes, but they don't necessarily see what she's like before she gets there, where she might like half an hour in the toilet. I was actually thinking about that earlier because I posted actually some stories on my Instagram earlier. just before the class and after the class, you know, having a bit of fun and, you know, some nice photos. Well, as nice as they can be when <laughs> yeah. you're photos and, and that kind of thing. And then I did, I realised, and, and actually today I haven't been feeling great. Mm. But, you know, it's part of your job that you put a smile on your face and you bring that joy to others because we don't know what they're going through. And that's part of my job, you know, in that role. But actually I was thinking, yeah, you guys don't know I was up during the night in in the bathroom with, you know, severe stomach cramps and, you know, everything else that went with it. You don't know that actually this morning I went to the bathroom three times within 10 minutes to make sure that I'd gone before I left so that I wouldn't have to run out in the middle of class or that, for example, you know, after coming home um, and, you know, then speaking to you, I went and had a nap for an hour and a half. Yeah. I would not have been able to put even two sentences together. Mm. Um, but obviously, you know, yes, a lot of people don't see what goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, I think that's one of the challenges is around how do you explain to people if they don't actually see it? Yeah. Um, not necessarily yeah. around without, you know, posting pictures of you, you know, sleep, having a nap or, you know. Yeah, on, yeah I mean, I draw the line at that. I'm not going to post this. <laughs> But I mean, speaking of people seeing it though, I mean, we're going to dig into some, some pretty hot topics here and we might as well jump in. And have you guys experienced, you know, the, the struggle to be seen, um, within the medical system over there, the NHS that you, you're part of, have you experienced that struggle to be seen? Um, and, and have you found that being women of color, being women, and being women of color, you know, has had an impact on people's receptiveness to 
um, or like doctor's receptiveness to the fact that you guys have these invisible disabilities? Um, yeah, I think there's two strands there. Firstly, obviously, the, the struggle to be seen hmm. and to be taken seriously in a way um, within the healthcare system in the UK, which is our NHS, which we wouldn't do without. I mean, when it works, it works so well. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm very much, I'm a believer in the system. Yeah. However, the way that it's working and operating at the moment, mm. it, it's a broken system. It's a lot There's of pressures. There's a lot of pressures. And for, for anyone that doesn't know, so the, the, the National Health Service, the NHS, um, it's free at the point of access the way it's funded is actually through our taxes. Mm. So we pay our taxes and a yeah, and a proportion of that then goes to funding the NHS. So actually at the point of access, it is free. Mm. However, you are still funding it, you know, through your through your taxes. And there's still mm. certain things which aren't free. So for example, um, certain um, prescription medications you still have to pay for unless you are um unless you're exempt and there's lots lots of criteria to make you exempt but for example just having ms doesn't make me exempt Mm. exemptions are things like if you're unemployed if you're on certain benefits you're over 65 i think Mm. it's five or 70 i think it's no i think it's if you're over 65 Thing. yeah because they haven't re- raised the uh the retirement yeah. age yet yeah. yeah for example if you if you're pregnant and mm-hmm. i think you have cancer yes then then medications are free for you um it's so interesting to me the cancer thing because it's like you talk to so many different people in the chronic illness world where and i i've interviewed a friend of mine who has cancer or has survived it a couple of times and you know her perspective is that cancer is a chronic illness just like so many of these other chronic illnesses right um, which makes a lot of sense to me, but it's really interesting that there's so much more funding and so much more research behind something like cancer and not as much behind things like ulcerative colitis and MS and all of these other invisible illnesses. So already there's this disparity, you yeah. know, in terms of like the fact that like you have to pay for certain medications and someone with cancer doesn't, but it doesn't make what you're going through any less important, you know? And I mean, you, we have to emphasize here, I mean, the what you pay is is heavily subsidized yeah. so a prescription charge i think now is is it seven nine, no it's oh, nine, pounds. nine pounds it's nine pounds oh, that's still so reasonable <laughs> that's what you per, per, per item, per item. Yeah. but for example so you know uh and this is where it's interesting because you know if it's on prescription you would pay for it so you'd either pay nine pounds per item or you can essentially buy um, a prepayment certificate, which is mm. a certain amount for a year. So it's, I think, £104 for the year. Mm. And you get as many prescriptions as you need. So you can work out what's likely to be most cost effective, you know, cost effective. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the first and second line medications for ulcerative colitis are all prescription medications that I've had to just trial and see if it works. And, you know, I either pay £104 for the year or, you know, I pay per item and then, you know, you don't really know if it's going to work or not. Right. 
once you hit a, you know, for example, the third line treatment, which is the biologics, it's not prescription, it's administered in hospital. Mm. So and actually you're not paying anything. So even within the, the IBD, so that's the inflammatory bowel disease community of which you have Crohn's and colitis, which are the two main ones, you can get some people who may be on prescription medication for the rest of their life and that works and they have to pay, you know, every year for it. Or you can have someone who is on another treatment, which is administered in the hospital, or for example, you may have injections, which you can do at home, of which you're not paying anything for it. Mm. And then there is There's still- a disparity and it makes no sense that some should have to pay and others. Yeah. But yeah, then, do you, have you found that like your, the, the way you present as female and as women of color has had an impact on, on your access to these treatments and, and whether or not it's like you, you've experienced pushback from doctors and. No, no, no I wouldn't I, say it's, it's difficult. I think it's difficult to say sometimes why people might push back. Right. So my first consultant, so for the first two years, so from 2008 to 2010, I was seen within a local hospital. They didn't have a specialist IBD unit. Right. I was seen by a kind of general gastroenterologist of who, to be honest, my health declined so much during that time I didn't really understand what was going on. Lots of terms were being bandied about. And then actually they wanted to do, to discharge me because they were like, well, we don't think there's anything wrong. You seem fine now. You know, let's just discharge you. And also you start to question your, almost your own sanity. Am I just making this up? Is this, you know? And I think at that time, I'm not sure quite why that happened. It sounds like certainly a lack of expertise from the medical consultants there was part of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But then also, so I also, so now I actually uh, travel um, eight, about, it's about 80 miles round trip trip to see current. uh, Two of you both do that. You both travel that far to see your specialists now. Um, And I remember the first appointment I had with my, with my gastroenterologist and I explained what was going on. She listened. She listened and she explained things and she talked me through things. And I burst into tears. Yeah. I was like, well, for the first time, I, I actually feel like I'm being heard here. Mm. But also over the years, so I've been seeing her now since 2010. And over the years, we've managed to find our own way of working together. Mm. Um, now, my hospital is in an area where you have a high Asian population. Okay it would be classed as a working class population as well. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, patients who, for example, may need translators or they have kind of a, a poor command of English. Mm. They're, you know, they're de- the medical uh, uh, practitioners are dealing with lots of different people. But I think... Also in, in certain pockets is quite orthodox. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which yeah. that in itself can bring its own challenges. Yeah. Uh, if you're particularly if you're dealing with um, sort of the more orthodox views, for example, that um, you know a woman shouldn't be seeing a doctor on her own, mm. or, not, or not seeing a male, male doctor, doctor, for example, um, and things like that. So don't, I mean, those are challenges. I mean, they're not. We come from a very 
uh, very open-minded um Aggressive family yeah into it but in terms of being asian and having chronic illness just generally that can bring from the community yeah. can bring um bring with it its its own challenges so you know a lack of lack of understanding a lack of um sort of knowledge about what the various conditions are i mean i remember lots of people I, haven't heard of ulcerative colitis no. or and, yeah and that's not just that's not just an asian problem that's like a <laughs> general problem you know what i mean so it's really interesting because it's like this is an emerging area of knowledge for a lot of people but the idea here being that people who have perhaps isolated them, themselves culturally or um, come from a more orthodox background, as you're saying, might be even less open to these ideas yeah. because yeah. they just haven't seen the proof and they yeah. just don't understand it. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. And I think some of it also then comes down to how confident do you feel in navigating the system? Mm. So I have had instances where, for example, I've gone to see my general practitioner um, so I've gone to see my family doctor. Yeah, family mm. doctor. Um, and I remember, so I wasn't able to see my regular doctor. And I went to see whichever doctor I could in, in the practice. I'd been getting some issues with my joints, which can potentially be linked to having ulcerative colitis because mm. it's an inflammatory condition. And of course, it's an And because all my care for my ulcerative colitis is at this particular particular hospital in London I explained that I wanted to be referred there to have it investigated because they would have all my medical files mm. exactly what medication I've tried has worked hasn't worked what side effects I've had what I'm currently on if anything was to go wrong just to so jump in here so for um, people who don't know the NHS is um, quite disjointed geographically mm. so have um you have different geog- the NHS is split into geographical areas Got it. Uh, and the different areas don't have the same systems so well that's a bit ridiculous isn't it that's that's a huge problem they can't share records so you know for example you know if I was to have a blood test done at my GP surgery my neurologist in London cannot access the results of that blood test so it actually is a roadblock to your your health in that sense yeah Yeah, that's a problem so so essentially i i and and there's also agreements within the area so between gp practices and hospitals and the cost of referrals Mm. have um agreements in place and to actually be referred out of area also costs more right and I remember sitting in that appointment and the doctor who knew nothing about my background because it wasn't my regular doctor, you get 10 minutes for an appointment. Mm-hmm. This is sounding very much like the American system. Yeah. <laughs> and, and essentially the doctor turned around and said, well, I don't understand. Why is your care over there? Why do you want to be referred there? Oh and, my God. To begin to explain that in 10 minutes. Well, yep. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, I was already feeling unwell as it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, the doctor, you know, I yeah. It's possible, unfortunately, you know. Um, And I had to sit there and explain and justify. And I remember walking out of there just feeling really awful. Yeah, of course. And actually, in many ways, very disempowered because I actually felt like I was having to justify. And I remember coming home and saying, well, if that's how 
how I felt when actually I can advocate for myself. Mm. What about those people that can't? What about those people who do struggle or who are more vulnerable? Yeah. That, that for me is sometimes one of the concerns that, that I think I have, you know, for myself, but for example, you know, for Trish, if she had a relapse and was struggling to advocate, well, actually who's going to be around to advocate for us? Mm. I feel that that is really important. We, you know, we need to have that, but we shouldn't have a system that does need that. You know, when it comes right. down to that's it it should be equal for all yeah well you shouldn't have any doctors looking at you and saying I don't understand that should be the first thing right like like that to hear that from a medical professional has got to be pretty shocking yeah you know yeah but it sounds like the system's working against you in that way even though as you say the NHS works in such beautiful ways it also is working against patients yeah and I think I think everybody who has any kind of experience in the NHS, whether that is, is as a patient, as somebody who works in the NHS, um, I think everybody will probably say that there is some very, very good bits. And when it works, it works really, really well. Yeah. But also there is lots which just, it doesn't it needs work. To, it doesn't work. Yeah. And it needs yeah. And I mean, a classic thing is like what we said about medical records. So, you know, when I've been on on some of the medication, uh, which is immunosuppressant medication, so essentially suppressing my immune system, I'd need regular blood tests. So to travel 80 miles just for a blood test. That seems a bit, yeah. It's really difficult. So, you know, the hospital sends information to your family doctor. This is what you can do. This is how to monitor but again, things were actually getting missed. So I actually developed leukopenia, which is actually when your white blood cells drop too low for the level that they feel is is okay. And mm. it's um so you're more likely to catch, you know, you're more likely to catch bugs and viruses anyway, but you need a certain level of resistance. And mm, one of the doctors completely missed it. Mm up you know the, the family doctor and essentially what I was doing was I would go for the blood tests phone them up for the results ask them to print the results leave a copy for me I was then scanning all my results sending it to my nurse who would then send it on to my consultant and I was having to do that basically every two weeks so I was essentially the middleman in my care yeah. Um, and that's a problem. To be quite honest, though, it's quite the same here. It's like, you know, because doctor's offices aren't going to share information, even if they're next door to each other. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to an invisible pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code invisible at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So it's, it's very much, it sounds like the actual problems fundamentally with your system and with ours are the same, right? That like, there's this lack of 
smooth communication between practices, um, whether that's geographical or otherwise, you know, that like you're certain people are having to pay for things that other people aren't. And it's kind of arbitrary at the end of the day, because nobody should have to pay for that if anyone's paying for it. And, you know, this is a system that you guys are paying into with your taxes over here. We're paying into it with monthly fees. It's, you know, six of one really. And, and no matter what, what I'm hearing is that ultimately the sicker you are, the harder it is to get care, which is a problem. Yeah. I think for continuity of care at least. And I think it also depends on which condition. Mm. Yeah. Because I mean, uh, we've, you know, we've had experiences, so either members of the family or people that we've known, Mm. depending on what their condition is, have been seen straight away, treated straight away. Well, cancer is one of them. Yeah, cancer is one of them. Nothing Uh, against cancer, you know, some people have it, but it's like that is one of the ones that gets treated as a cancer. But but then saying that, so in the UK, they've done a lot of work in order to try and improve the the pathway for cancer. Mm. So now there's what they they call the, um, is it two-week? pathway um where if you go to your family doctor presenting symptoms potentially the cancer you're fast-tracked so your is fast-tracked and you have to be um you have to be seen by a consultant within two weeks and have the investigations done um but that's obviously that's been work that's been done within the nhs to be able to bring that system in mm. But actually trying working on um, there's uh, a movement which is trying to advocate for a similar system with neurology preventing mm. certain neurological symptoms that they, that, that, that they could be linked to another degenerative disease that could degenerate yes. very quickly yeah it's um, the speed at which these diseases degenerate or or you know exactly. yeah 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 so they're saying you know within I think I can't the time span but within a certain number of weeks if you're presenting neurological symptoms within a certain number of weeks you should have been seen by a neurologist had certain tests done and basically got some kind of either diagnosis or onward referral or solution or something Mm. so i mean there is a push for that to happen whether it will or how long it might take to happen is another question and i think the with all these things is you know a lot of it is around um staffing levels funding you know it, it it's it, there's only so much the system can cope with you know people are working so hard in the system and yes there are targets but at the end of the day these people are human mm. and there's so much they can do within the infrastructure and I think what's happened is obviously over the years, there's, you know, has been a, a growth in, you know, population. There's an increase in, you know, invisible illnesses, you know. Well, it's not that there's an increase. It's just that people are understanding them more, isn't it? It's like, well, it's interesting because yeah. ultimately it also sounds like, you know, again, like the American system, we're dealing with a sick care system here, that if you're acutely ill, you're going to get seen right away. But yeah. if if we're not tackling preventive care, then people are just going to keep getting sicker. Yeah. Yeah. And, also, and that's going to tax the system. Yeah. And also, I mean, in the UK, we have an aging population as yeah. well. So 
Mm. I mean, at the moment, the the big thing in the UK, there's a huge push towards um, dementia care Mm. um, and Alzheimer's research and, you know, how looking at how can we as a as a country, as a society, provide the care that's going to be needed because we have pe- more and more people living for longer so and that they are more likely to need care because they're then going on to develop dementia mm-hmm. um, and so and also all the other different things that come with having an aging population just generally an aging population is going to place a bigger burden on the healthcare system mm-hmm. um, which is obviously coming at a time when just generally we've had population growth and we know that the system was already under pressure. Yeah. You know, it is, it is very difficult. Having said that, I mean, we're to be perfectly honest, you know, I wouldn't have been able to afford any of my MS medications if I'd had to pay for them. So my MS medications when I was on them were being they were being funded because they were being prescribed by the hospital right so you don't have to pay for them but um you know there is you're talking about the kind of figures where you have to you know take out a mortgage yeah. I mean I house, have, those kind of figures I mean I spent some time traveling in Chile mm. um, some years ago and spent some time with people who have uh, multiple sclerosis but also Crohn's and colitis and mm. some who I met there who um She's had Crohn's for many, many years. Mm. And for one of the medications which you can get here on the NHS through the hospital and would be free to access, she actually had to work out a payment plan with her mother, her ex-husband and herself in order to fund this medication, of which there was no guarantee it was actually going to work for her. Wow. So, you know, when you hear, you know, and I often see, you know, in the online groups, particularly, you know, those, you know, the people who are in America saying, well, my insurance has refused to fund this medication or they've refused to fund it, you know, moving from a 12 weekly injection to an eight weekly injection or, you know, I need some steroids because I'm having a flare up. It's going to cost me, you know, so many, you know, however many dollars and I don't get paid until the end of the month. Mm, yeah I mean between food and, and medication is this something where you guys also as patients in the system do you especially because you're working in the advocacy space too right like so you understand the ins and outs of it so much more and you're you're talking to the change makers and you are the change makers do you spend a lot of does it tax you emotionally to be worrying about your status as patients? Like, do you ever have moments where you're like, will I have care in a year? Like if the system is so disjointed? I think, um, well, for me personally, um, my immediate, my concern isn't the immediate. Mm. It's the longer term. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to have a state pension. Mm. I don't, there is going to be social care available Uh, and I don't think there is going to be a um a a benefit system system which is going to be able to sustain a decent standard of living 
And this is also, you're speaking from like, you work full time. It's not like you're not contributing to society. The two of you both work very hard. So it's really interesting that like, you're worried about your future, even though you have stable full-time jobs and like, you know, it's unbelievable that you have to worry about things like that. And then what that stress is going to do to your bodies. Yeah. Well, that's what, that was one of the really interesting things because when, um, so in 2008, Hmm. I started experiencing my symptoms and obviously Trishna had her diagnosis. I was going through things with my work. So I was made redundant from one job. I started another job. Um, you know, it was great, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of pressure, you know, around starting a new job. And, you know, Trishna was getting a lot of side effects from her medication. So we were, you know, looking after her and you're still going to work the next day. And, you know, for me, during that period, actually in 2008, my thinking started to change because I was like, okay, now we know what we're dealing with. We know what these symptoms mean. We've got a diagnosis. So we need to start preparing for the future because if any reason, you know, Trishna, for example, does need care, if we need adaptations to to the home, not just now, but actually in 20, 30, 40 years time, for example, when our parents aren't around, for me, suddenly I was like, okay, that's going to, that's going to be a responsibility that potentially falls to me Mm. because I'm well, I'm okay. You know, yes, I didn't really know what was going on with my own symptoms at the time, but suddenly my focus for my career changed. Mm. And then actually, and you know, I'm, to be honest, I wasn't taking great care of myself because, you know, it's also that thing of, well, when you need to do what you need to do, you just get on and do it. Yeah. You push through. Especially women. (laughs) Yes, really good in that. Yeah. And and our focus was trying to help Trishna through this time because yeah. you know you, you you see the effect that you know medication is supposed to help. Yes, great, but there are also a lot of side effects that can come with it. Yeah. And then actually, as time has gone on, and 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 kind of with everything that I've been through with my physical health, my mental health, I've kind of gone. I don't think this is going to work. I'm concerned about how I'm going to even take care of myself without having to actually take care of someone else as well. Mm. And I actually share, you know, a lot of the similar concerns to Trishna, you know, for, for my own care, but then also, you know, what if it's both of us, then what? Yeah. How, how are we going to cope then? At least at this stage, you have each other for emotional support, but there may come a time when, you know, you have to just sort of like get her done kind of. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. really scary. And do you think that's also a result of like the way in which a system like the NHS was designed for a particular population at a particular time and hasn't sort of grown to meet the demand of population increase and, and this increase in chronic illness. Like, do you think it's just that the system's broken and creating these worries for you because it wasn't designed for our world the way we live in it now? I think, I think partly, and I think it's, I think it's around change management because you know, we can't really predict the future. I mean, we can have an idea, but, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago, could we have predicted where we were? Mm. I don't. I think, you know, with any organisation, whether it's a commercial organisation, whether it's the NHS, I think there's always that difficulty around, does the left hand know what the right hand is doing, especially when it's such a huge organisation. And I think that's sometimes where the difficulty can lie because, you know, everything is is so you know budget staffing levels 
uh, the pressure. I think it's a whole mixture of things. And I, I, I think I think things have changed in the world to a point where, yes, we probably couldn't have predicted it or we weren't expecting it. And how quickly do things change? Be able to accommodate that. And yeah. I feel that there is an element of, you know, people are working very hard, but sometimes it organize, the, the actual infrastructure itself is not able to adapt quick enough. Yeah. Well, that's part of, that's the red tape thing of being a government agency, isn't it? You know, it's like, how quickly can you create change when there's like, you know, 30 different forms you have to fill out because you've got to please yeah. every different organization. And yeah, that's got to be very frustrating. I mean, certainly over here, I think we're experiencing similar frustrations, even though the insurance industry is privatized, you know, like it's, it's very interesting that these two very different systems are creating the same problems for patients and for doctors. Yeah. And I think it's more, it's become reactive. So the, the, yeah. organically, um, it's almost like, so when you look at uh, the UK underground system, the metro system mm. that we hear, mm-hmm. you look at all the different lines and you're like, oh, that's a bit odd. And then this has <laughs> been here and because it grew organically. Whereas sometimes when you look at other city systems and it all looks very like neat, it's lines. really neat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> London is not like that. Not, not no, exactly. <laughs> that's how it's been designed with, okay, this is what we need. Now, in the future, that may even, change. Even our cities are like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't get my head around a grid system for the first time. I was like, oh, this is really confusing. And then I was like, oh, actually, it makes sense. Yeah. I think that's what's happened with, with our healthcare system. It's grown organically. We haven't necessarily known what what's been needed. We've been reacting for all these years. Yeah, and it's almost it's so difficult to untangle. Actually, it's not it's not really clear. There's not an easy kind of way around it to solve these issues. Yeah, uh, I think there are lots of ideas, and you know there are lots of great things happening. But unfortunately, I think sometimes that is the case when something grows organically to meet that you know to try to meet the needs of of you know the change which is happening and i think there are obviously there are other models um in in different countries um and i think one of the main um main difficulties of changing the model of the nhs will be the the british the the way the british the the british culture mindset Mm. how they view the nhs because it's an institute, it's a national institution. Yeah. People are very protective of the NHS. And despite the fact, there's lots of people who, you know, who are, who are saying the same as, you know, thing as, things as us, that it is a broken system, that it does, you know, that things aren't necessarily working, that there is a lot of pressure. As soon as you say, we're going to do something to change it, mm. their reaction is, oh, no, you can't touch the NHS. Right, it's precious. It's yeah. pressure. Yes, exactly. And I think I, the other danger is, is that when, when there's talk about changing the NHS and there's talk about possible privatisation, mm. people automatically assume that privatisation equals the American model. Yeah. And actually... Nobody wants. <laughs> exactly. And whereas they don't necessarily re- realise, actually there are other, you know, either... Yeah. 
privatized or partly privatized models out there that do work very well. well. There are already versions of the privatization happening in the UK with things like Bupa. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and so what, and what's happening is actually you're getting it uh, in certain ways, we're starting to see the emergence of a two tier system mm. where people who can afford it are not only paying into the NHS, they're also paying into a pro- into private health insurance, right. um, which, you know, yes, get, basically gets you access often to the same doctors just mm. in a quicker amount of time mm. and in nicer hospitals where you potentially get your own room um, and, you know, free tea and free coffee. Tea and coffee <laughs> and you get nice but the thing, about, the thing about that that's frustrating just to hear about it is like, okay, you know, it's nice that those options exist, but why should someone have faster access to a doctor because they pay more? Like compared to someone who might just be sicker, you know, it makes me think like it's someone who's going for like a general health check is going to get in to see this doctor sooner than someone like one of us who has a chronic illness. And it's like, that's great. They're getting preventive care. So fine. But like, what about the rest of us who've been waiting, you know, like the clock's ticking and we need to go in and see our doctors. It creates a a level of, um, it, it just makes it unfair. And then it's like, no one wants to, that feels nasty. Yeah, and also, I mean, once you're given a diagnosis and something that's chronic, mm. health insurances won't—they—they they, they won't cover it, cover you. So you end up being put back into the NHS system anyway. So even if you get a diagnosis privately, once you get that diagnosis, you're then put back into the NHS NHS system anyway. Mm. Um, so you know, if people, you know, often people will ask me, "Oh, you know, where are the good MS centres?" Should I pay privately? And I always say to them, well, no, actually, you, you will be put into the NA, back into the NHS anyway. And actually, the NHS MS centres are basically the best because they're where the, all the research is happening. They're where the, new, the MS specialist neurologists are. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, you might get a diagnosis quicker, which something like MS can in the long term have a a potentially positive impact because if you get your diagnosis quicker then potentially you can start thinking about what treatments to go on quicker Um, but in the long term you will still have to navigate the NHS system. Mm. What's also difficult sometimes is around how the system's uh, not the systems, but the different areas can be disjointed. So, for example, if you're if you have a chronic illness, uh, but you have mental health issues, oh so, boy! And I we mean, know this is an area of expertise for you too, because you work in the mental health space. I I do, and and I've had mental health issues. I have a chronic illness. I've had you know mental health Ill issues associated with my chronic illness. I've had mental health issues due to traumatic events. Hmm. But actually, even those systems are disjointed. So kind of what would be ideal is having a almost a hub, you know, so with with colitis, I could have mental health issues. I could have joint issues. I could have I may need to see um, a, a dietitian, for example, for around nutrition. Um, I yeah, my have may have to see a continence nurse. Um, you know, someone to do with sinuses because a lot of the medications can cause sinus issues. Mm. You may develop another chronic, you know, illness as, as well. So what I suppose would be ideal would be to have a hub where 
here, you know, the patient is in the center and you have access to all these people in one space. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And it could so easily happen because you could create those centers in every geographical area, you know, and just give people the training and the expertise and just sort of like reorganize the system. But yeah. God forbid you touch it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> lots of things changing so for example within the mental health area that I, I work in um you know I'm quite lucky that it, it's it's at the forefront of uh primary care mental health so for example they do have a pathway for people with long-term conditions and you know they do have access to certain things you know they're asked at the point of access do you have a long-term health condition and is it affecting your mental health in which case then you know you do follow a, a pathway but for example what I don't have you know so I've I've been down that route myself but what I haven't had was when I've you know been at the point with my consultant saying I'm really struggling here with my mental health actually being able to see someone within that center at that point and I think that, again, is where it's quite difficult. I mean, even in the mental health space, you know, if you move from one area to another, as we talked about before, access to notes. So, you know, at the moment we are looking into things that are, okay, so what can we do to improve that? Because you know, the people we work with, if they then move out of area, we can no longer work with them. They then have yeah. to be referred to their local area mental health service. Is it as simple as the patient being able to have access to all their records so that like you can just carry a file with you to every appointment? But who's going to sit and read that? What doctor has like the... So, so we actually have, we have files, you know, we, yeah. we have our notes and I, I mean, I've had files with like blood tests. I have, I have um, colonoscopy results. They give you pictures and everything. So, you know, I'm like, oh, I could, you know, literally make up my whole body with all the different. <laughs> Let me give um, you a picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, my fashion, my fashion shoot. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so some people will do that. Again, that can be really difficult. And I, I mean, I got tired carrying this great big file, you know, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, NHS Digital, uh, so that's the area which is looking at technology within the NHS, mm. now uh, becoming more prominent. There's a lot of things that they're trying to do with that to look at, okay, so how can we become more at the forefront and use technology um, to support patients, to support the medical professionals, to, um, you know, make it a smoother transition. There are lots of things going on. Um, again, I think the difficulty is, you know, when it all costs money, getting the manpower behind it, you know, all those kinds of things, you have to account for everything. And, you know, rightly so, um, these things take time. So there is a lot happening. But again, it's just a lot of these things do take time. And whether it gets rolled out everywhere, you know, or it's trial, you know, be trialed first, you know, all those things, again, even by the time, you know, there's actually access throughout the country. You know, we do still have disparity in terms of access throughout the country. Yeah. You know, what we call in the UK, it's the postcode lottery. So depending on what, you know, postcode or zip code you live in can affect what, what access, access to, to services, medication, yeah. Yeah. expert and care. And like, how should that make an, a difference? Because And then what happens, at least in, in here in the States, is that, you know, if you base anything on a, on a zip code, what you're doing is you're, you're isolating certain groups 
And it's often people of color who are given fewer opportunities educationally and then medically and, you know, like who, who end up because of their postcodes, um, having a lack of information and a lack of access to services, which is what it sounds like is exactly what's happening over there. Um, which is endlessly frustrating. It's almost like, how do you, cause it's like, I know you guys are advocates and you have ideas about how to fix it, but also like the, the echelons of power at which you have to like have this communication and this back and forth, this dialogue about change. Like how does change actually happen? Like, do you actually see it occurring? Uh, yeah, yes. you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. do. I mean, maybe not as fast as you might want it yeah. to, but it is happening. And I think, Uh, when it comes to the chronic illness space I often say that every single person actually it's not even just the chronic illness space just generally it's something that I I talk about a lot when I'm doing presentations I often say um, I often say you know who in the who in the room is a patient and you know you might be there and you've got a room full of people from pharma companies from health tech companies for you know healthcare professionals um, nurse, what, whatever, and usually only a few people will put their hands up because it's those of us who are there as patient advocates usually. And then I'll say, well, who in this room has ever been to the doctor or been to the hospital about something in their lives? And literally everyone will put their hands up. And I'll say, every single person is going to be a patient at some point in their lives. Yeah. So every single person has a responsibility and a vested interest in making sure that change happens. Yes. It doesn't have to be that they're doing something big. It might just be that locally, you know, it might be that they get something improved in their in their G, in their doctor's surgery. Mm. Or it might be that, you know, for example, they advocate if they, you know, they need a medication and it's not going to be funded. They advocate to get that medication funded. Mm. Um, it's things like that where every little thing, every small action will eventually build up mm. and that's how change will happen. But it's not, it's not solely the responsibility of those of us who are already diagnosed, yeah. those who are already, you know, in the patient advocacy arena, it's everyone's responsibility because everyone will be using the healthcare service at some point in their lives. Yeah, I think that's so well said. I think that, like, I mean, that really sums up so much of what we're talking about today. Yeah. So, yeah I think often the difference between people who do advocate or, or those in the chronic illness area is because we tend to use the service more than the average person so we experience more you almost become an expert in okay so how do I navigate this you know so when I phone up my my you know the reception of my family doctor saying I need an appointment and they ask me well can you tell me what it's for (laughs) well I don't really want to have to disclose my details to to the receptionist but I will say I have a chronic illness I need to see my family doctor Hmm. you know Whereas the average person that might have to see their doctor once in a year, once every two years, you know, doesn't have that same experience. So I think, you know, it is about people change their mindset of, well, yes, if I'm using the healthcare service, that that means I am a patient. Mm. Whether there are also, I think, different levels of patience and engagement and experience in terms of what you kind of 
go through and what your own experiences are, what you see and, and what you then feel actually can make a difference. Mm. But as Trishna said, you know, it is everyone's responsibility. And, you know, for all the, the difficulties and, and faults that there kind of are with the NHS, I mean, I think both of us are just hugely thankful that we have it because, you know, without it, I'm not sure where we would be. Really? Certainly, yeah. we wouldn't be able to afford the medications that we've been on. I mean, between the two of us, we, you know, probably the, the, the cost of a, 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 you know, the cost of a house. Several houses. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for, for all the difficulties and everything, you know, especially when I spent time traveling abroad and, and speaking to other people and, the you know, their healthcare systems and the barriers that they face, you know, I am thankful, you know, regardless of what we have to, to go through. And sometimes, you know, yes, there are things that need to change, but I'm thankful for the, you know, the fact that I have access. I'm thankful for my consultant who is brilliant. Mm you know everything else I think that goes with it because you know it's hard enough living with a chronic illness yeah and that's the point here the isn't it one like that one that a lot of people can't see yeah. you know they think everything is all well and fine because you're smiling and you've got a face of makeup on but they don't see what's going on actually with yeah. your interviews yeah well ladies I want to be respectful of your time I know you you need to shoot but um I feel like we've covered so much and I thank you so much for your time today and I really hope that continuing to have these conversations just to engage in them helps people to learn more about creating change. And as Trishna said, we all become patients at some point. So we all need to give a damn. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for having us again. <laughs> yeah. It's been such a pleasure. I love having you guys on. So thank you so much for your time. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.